Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning and the body of Christ. Thank you that you are above and below us. You are all around us. Where can we go from your presence? Where can we run where you are not there? God, we are so blessed to be called your people. We are so rich in our hearts and in our spirits because you are our God. By your mercy and by your grace, you've covered our sins, and we come before you, all of us imperfect and broken and weak, but made perfect in Christ Jesus. We humble ourselves before you, and we cry out to you as our God, and we worship you this morning. Together as a people, as a family, we lift our hearts and our hands, and we worship you, and we praise your name. May you be glorified by these lives that you have redeemed. Thank you for ascribing value to us through the blood of Jesus Christ and for dwelling in us by the power of your Holy Spirit and for leading us in your sovereign hand. God, I pray that you would lead this time as we open the word of God. Let it be, let our hearts as we look into it be worshipful as we um, seek to submit to your will and surrender to that to the, the fact that you are God and King and you have a plan and a will for us. Please anoint this word to speak to our hearts. Help, it, help us to hear exactly what we need to hear this morning. And I pray that your name would be glorified by all that we do together as a family, as a church, today and tomorrow and this week. Please be with our pastor and his family. Bless them and fill them with your spirit and anoint them to continue the work that you've called them to do. I pray that through their ministry and uh, the work that you've called them to do here at Rosemont Baptist Church, many people will be blessed and many souls will be saved. God, thank you for our church as we go out and minister in the name of Jesus Christ to all the world. Please keep us safe and lead us out. Go before us and come behind us. I pray that you would do the work and you would continue to let us be part of it. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And as you do, I, do, I would like to invite you to just keep, keep praying for Pastor Adam. Y'all, we are blessed with such a wonderful pastor and his family. And uh, they are on vacation right now. And the Lord is just rejuvenating them and pouring into their, their lives. And they'll be back this week. Um, but pray that God will continue to bless our pastor. And uh, just remember that, that in ministry, uh, sometimes fruit is hard to see. Sometimes, it's not, sometimes in a business, you look for numbers and you look for results and you can quantify the good that's taking place, or the bad in some cases, but in ministry it can't always be seen. So don't forget every once in a while to offer a word of encouragement to our pastor. Say thank you to him, or, uh, or if you've been blessed, if the Lord's used him to speak a truth in your life, let him know, because uh, that's uh, something that the Lord will use to minister back into their family. So just an encouragement there. I'd like to read, before we read in First Samuel, I'd like to read this passage from Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 this morning. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And I'd like to read a quote to you from George Mueller. Uh, he was a famous man of prayer and a man of faith. Uh, if you don't know about George Mueller, you should look him up and read his story. Uh, God did some amazing things through him and his willingness. His, his faith 
was, was big. And God saved many people through his life. But this is what he said about prayer. He said, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk about, when I lie down, and when I rise up. And the answers are always coming. Thousands and ten thousands of times have my prayers been answered. When once I am persuaded that a thing is right and for the glory of God, I go on praying for it until the answer comes. We are blessed at Rosemont Baptist Church. God is doing some really amazing things through us. And our pastor is doing a great job preaching to us passages of scriptures about being sent and being on mission and about the calling that Jesus has for each one of us in this life. And I think what's really great is Rosemont Baptist Church and many of the people in our fellowship have accepted the fact that, that some of us have been called around the world to do ministry here and there, all around the globe, but all of us have been placed right here in LaGrange for a very special purpose as well. Many of us in our fellowship are beginning to look at our careers and and the people that are in our circles of influence as the place that we've been sent to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what's really great about our fellowship is that as we are looking for ways to go abroad, we are looking for ways to also recognize that right here where we are, we are sent and we're on mission already. Ready. And one thing I'd like to do this morning is talk to you a little bit about um, our attitude of prayer as we are sent, while we are on mission, and when we do go, and when we do obey this, this calling to be sent, I want to remind, remind you, as the Lord constantly reminds me, that too much is at stake for me to be content with casual prayer in my life. Too much is at stake. We shouldn't be content with casual prayer if we're going to attempt mighty things for God. And we shouldn't be content with casual prayer if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ at all. We live in a world that is, that is full of turmoil, that's full of pain. I'm sure many of you have watched a lot of news, and some of you um, that are really blessed have learned to turn it off. Um, but the, the world is falling to, to pieces around us. But, you know, it's interesting. I've studied a lot of, well, I can't say I've studied a lot of history. I love history. I'm studying more and more history as I get older. Uh, and I'm learning that there really, truly is nothing new under the sun. All these problems that we're facing in our culture our societies have been facing for centuries. But one thing that I think is really easy is to lose sight of the God that we serve in the midst of everything that's going on. And we begin to be mired and bogged down in what we're going to do about it, which is good. We, as adults especially, we have to look at our responsibilities and figure out how we can contribute to our culture and our society and change the culture to be a culture that looks at the world through the eyes of, the, of God and of His Word. And we have to look at that. But oftentimes, if we lose sight of the fact that we are God's people and He is our God, we begin to lose faith. And we begin to be bogged down in doubt and fear and anxiety and worry and temptation. And too much is at stake in our families and in the mission that God's called us to for us to lose sight of our God. So I want to talk to you a little bit about prayer this morning. Um, and not just any kind of prayer. You know, if you've, if you've studied the Word of God at all, you know that there are multiple ways to pray. There are multiple demonstrations of prayer in Scripture. You look from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to Revelation, you see the people of God crying out to God in different ways. Sometimes it's a really fast prayer in the midst of a conversation. Sometimes it's really withdrawing and spending 40 days and 40 nights with God. And sometimes it's something like fasting and drawing away from food and denying yourself of things and seeking the face of God. And some of them are really simple prayers. Some of them are songs, much like the ones we just sang. Many of you um, know what it's like to some of us, I think, we go to church our whole lives and we listen to songs and we forget the fact that those are supposed to be conversations between us and the Lord. Prayers, they're supposed to be a crying out from the soul to our God. And poetry and music is a great way to kind of lead our hearts and our souls into the presence of the Lord. And you see that demonstrated in Scripture. But one method of prayer, one demonstration of prayer that I would like to focus on this morning is Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I, I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time on exactly what she was praying for. There's a lot to be said about that. But I would like to speak a little bit about how she prayed. And the heart that she prayed with. And this is a very, I believe it's a very specific and an amazing example of somebody that was pouring out their soul to God. 
This is not a simple little prayer. It's not a short prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that you pray before dinner, which is a good prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that you pray before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning and you're saying, God, today is a new day. Thank you for this new day. Please give me the strength. Give me wisdom. Help me to walk in your ways and uh, give me patience and help me to be, um, to be a man of integrity. And we're praying some basic prayers throughout the day and constantly lifting up those prayers, kind of like George Mueller saying, well, he's living in a spirit of prayer, praying as he walks about when he lies down and when he rises up. Those are good things. It's a good attitude to live in. But there are times in scripture where it's very, uh, where it's demonstrated very clearly that people uh, were not content with just living that way and going throughout their busy lives, lifting up all that busyness to the Lord in prayer, which is good. But there were times when people stopped everything and put everything down and dedicated a set amount of time to one thing and one thing only, and that was to simply seek the face of God and pour out their soul to God. And they sought nothing else, and sometimes not even food or water during that season of time, because they wanted to, they hungered and thirsted for one thing and one thing only, and that was the favor of God. They recognized they needed God's favor more than anything else that they've been striving after in the world. Reminded of the passage of scripture in Isaiah where he says to be still and know that I am God. Cease striving, stop fighting, and be reminded that I am God. I will be exalted among the people. I will be exalted among the nations. Sometimes we get so bogged down in everything that's going on in life that we lose sight that God is God and will always be God. So let's take a look at this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, just in summary, the first few verses, it introduces this family, uh, the family of Elkanah. Uh, he had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah, and, um, uh, and there was obviously some drama there because there, were more, there was one, more than one wife in the same house, um, which we definitely see several times in the Old Testament. We get into that. I don't really want to spend a lot of time on that, mostly because I feel inadequate to answer that question. But uh, there's a lot of... Um, most all the examples you see in scripture where there's more than one wife in the same home, there's just drama. It just doesn't work out so good. And in this, in this particular case, that's what's happening to Hannah and Peninnah. And Elkanah is just kind of off the side going, man, ladies, work it out. All right, so and this is verse 4. Let's start in verse 4. This is what he says. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, this is how he described the, the sister-wife situation going on there. They were rivals, okay? So her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. This is very intentional, nothing subtle about it. Every year, he would go once a year to offer a sacrifice for his family, which was the custom of the man of God, and they would offer a peace offering and for the, for the forgiveness of the sins of that family. And, uh, and every year, he would give gifts to his wives. Uh, this was a big, usually a big celebration time every year. He would give gifts to his wives, and then uh, one of his wives, Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her a lot and he knew that she didn't have a child and Peninnah did have a child and this was a great opportunity for Peninnah to turn around and jab at her and say, hey, you don't have any kids. And that was a very, unfortunately, in that time of, uh, in that day, that was very hurtful to, to many women and that was very, very difficult because she couldn't have kids and here's this person really, really rubbing it in. And so she says, and this is what happens in verse 7. It happened year after year. For years, this is going on. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her so that she, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than 10,000 sons? So she wasn't eating. She was depressed. Her sister wife was constantly provoking her to, um, to anger and to sadness and to depression and rubbing this situation in into her life. And this went on for year after year after year. And so um, instead of, at this point in the passage of Scripture, instead of taking this to the the Lord, um, there's not really much indication that she'd been doing much 
uh, praying about it. She may have, but it was obviously, uh, it obviously was indicated that she was internalizing a lot of it. She wasn't talking about it. In fact, it was affecting her ability to eat. She wouldn't eat. She was so depressed. And her husband came to her and said, Hannah, you're not eating. You're very depressed. I want to help you. Am I not better than 10 sons? I'm a good husband to you. I'm trying, I don't know how we could really say that. He's like, I'm a good husband to you, but I do have another wife just in case. And um, so he said, I'm a good husband to you. I'm trying to encourage you. I'm better than, you could have 10 sons and I'm better than that. And she's like, thanks. That's great. You know, so he was trying to be there for her, but obviously he was not the spirit of God and he was not God himself and could not offer to her the peace that passes all understanding that she needed in a situation like that. And so she was, she was very broken. And so what she did in verse nine, she rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple and she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 11, she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. And down at the bottom of verse 15, she said, well, verse 15 says, but Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And in verse 16, it says, do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken now out of my great concern and provocation. So here's a woman who, is, who has been provoked year after year after year. She's depressed. She's not eating. She's suffering in her soul. But she determines at this point to go to the temple by herself, and she, she gets alone somewhere in that temple, somewhere where she can be with God, and she pours out her soul to God, and she weeps bitterly before God. So here's what I'd like to do is just kind of elaborate to you what it would look like for you and I to pour out our souls to God about the things that are going on in our lives. Like we may not struggle with this issue, but there, because we live in the world we live in, there is a difficulty in every person's life. And I think God allows us to go through seasons regularly where he would desire that we fall to our knees and cry out to him desperate for his help because he's the only one who can help us. I think very often we get in situations where where we are praying about it, we're seeking the Lord, or we're trying to deal with it, we're trying to get this situation figured out, and we just can't. It's very difficult, it's very oppressive, and sometimes dangerous. We might even be facing an incredibly, incredibly difficult temptation in our life, and we realize that we cannot fight this on our own strength. Or we might be making a major decision for our family, or we're deciding whether or not we're going to go on mission, and we're trying to figure out whether we're going to Alaska, or Zambia, or Asia, and how we're going to come up with 15 thousand dollars because we want to see our whole family go. You know, we're trying to make these major decisions for our families or we're trying to figure out, you know, what what happens. Some of you know what, what goes through your mind because you've been before. You know what goes through your mind right before you leave your family and go on a mission trip. Right before you get on that airplane and leave to go out of the country, sometimes there are thoughts that go through your mind that are not from God. There are thoughts that are very, they're very difficult to wrestle with. You think about your family and you think about your kids and you think about the airplane and whether or not it's going to make it. And so, so all these things go through your mind. You've already wrestled with some of those things, but a lot of times they come flooding back and sometimes we attempt to just bottle those up and internalize them and tough it out and say, I'm a Christian, I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do and which is good, we're supposed to be obedient. But sometimes we forget that when we are wrestling with all these things internally, God would see us to stop wrestling with those things and take them to him and pour them out before the Lord and see him answer those prayers in our hearts and see him provide the peace that passes all understanding that we desperately need. So here's what I'd like to do is share with you this. When you pour out your soul to God, first express the emotions that God gave to you. I think sometimes we have a difficulty expressing emotions to God, especially us men. We've learned since we were little boys how to keep ourselves from crying. We've been taught, we've taught, trained ourselves that crying in public is kind of a no-no because when we do, that usually turns out bad when everybody else around us starts ridiculing us. I know because I was one of those kids that, for one reason or another, I was just really sensitive growing up and so easily offended, got my feelings hurt really quick. So, um, so I was that kid, somebody could be like, you know, say my name wrong and I'd be like, 
you know, so, so, um, and I always, you know, that was dumb. I'd go home later and be like, why did I cry about that? That was so stupid. And, um, and everybody, you know, so, so I, and so I learned how to just make myself not cry even when I really wanted to. And, um, now as an older, you know, I've gotten a lot older when I need to express emotions. Sometimes they're just not there because I've just forced myself to not have them for so long. And so sometimes I wish that I could cry out to God in the same fashion. Some scriptures that I'd like to, to show you that, um, that were really interesting in here. In verse 10, it says, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She wept bitterly. And then she said in verse 11, O Lord of hosts. And then in verse 15, it says that she poured out her soul before the Lord. She came to a place, this wasn't a casual prayer, God help me, traveling mercies, please bless this, please bless that, God help me with this. This was something completely different. She fell on her face and she expressed, she let all of that emotion come out before the Lord and she wanted God to deal with this emotion. One really small word in verse 11 that I think is one of the most powerful words in the Bible but is often overlooked because when we read the Bible, I think, and this is just a side note, when you read the Bible, you should remember there's lots of emotion in God's word and when you read the Bible, you need to be careful not to read it like a dictionary. It doesn't read, there's, it doesn't read flat. When you read a word like, oh, that's an emotion. That is a crying out, sometimes even a shouting. When you're reading that word, you, you can imagine Hannah shouting out to the Lord. Now, she probably didn't because Eli said she, he was watching her mouth move, but not hearing any sounds. But something within her soul was crying out as if internally she was screaming to the Lord, saying, oh, Lord of hosts. And she cried out to God. And you look, in, you look at David. In Psalm 119, you see him doing many of the same things. In Psalm 119, he says, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. He wanted to be able to be so obedient to the commands of God that when he looked upon the commandments of God, he wouldn't be ashamed of himself. And so he cried out, Oh, that my ways may be established. And then he says, He says, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. And David said, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me. These are the phrases David uses when he prayed. And I, when I read those phrases, sometimes I'm like, God, I'm kind of, I'm trying to practice praying scripture and letting the word of God be part of my prayers and because I know these are, that's close to the heart of God. And one of the, sometimes when I get in, come up against scriptures like that, I look at them and I say, can I really pray that? You know, can I, can I really say that I, my soul is crushed with longing after God? Have I been at that place in my life where I've been so desperate for God that my soul feels dried up, hungry, and thirsty, and I'm falling on my knees before God and saying, God, I am crying out to you now. I need your presence in my life. I need you to feed me with the presence of your Holy Spirit. I need you to enrich me. I have this, here's this issue that I'm laying on the altar before you, and I'm asking you, Lord, to take it. I can't deal with it. I can't do it. I need you to handle it, and I'm pouring out my soul to God saying, I'm going to stay here until you fill me with your presence and you change me and you help me. And so in this situation, Hannah is crying out to the Lord, pouring out her soul to God. And notice this, she said in verse said in verse 9, this Samuel said in verse 9, Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. So this was after her husband encouraged her. She got up, she ate a little bit, and then she went to the temple. But notice down in verse 18, she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So after she'd spent that time praying, she ate again. Now, this doesn't necessarily look like she intentionally fasted. Fasting um, typically was for the purpose of setting aside... There were lots of reasons people fasted in Scripture. Um, never was a reason for just, you know, fasting just so that it can make you more spiritual. But fasting generally was for the purpose of setting aside food or water or something else for the purpose of hungering and thirsting for God to answer your prayer more than for God to give you food in that moment. And the, lo- the longer it goes, the more hungry you get, the more fervent your prayer becomes, the more desperate your prayer becomes. Because instead of saying, I'm going to go get something to eat, you're saying, God, I need you to answer this prayer. God, I need you to answer this prayer. 
God, I need you to answer this prayer. And so this season right here, she may or may not have been fasting on purpose, but it's pretty obvious that this was not just a casual prayer. This wasn't just as she was going or while she's driving to work or just a little short prayer before, um, before church or something on Sunday morning. This was a, I'm dedicating some time aside and I'm not going to worry about food. I'm not going to worry about clothing. I'm not going to worry about all kinds of other stuff that consumes my mind. I'm putting all this stuff aside and I'm dedicating this next few hours she could have been there. It's really hard to tell. She could have been there for an hour. She could have been there for a couple of days. We really don't know. But however long she was there, that time that she was there was dedicated for one purpose, to seek the face of God, to hunger and thirst for God, desiring only for God. And she poured out her emotions to the Lord in that. And I know that's something that some of us may have never done. Our prayers to God have been mostly stoic, kind of, kind of dry, um, which are not necessarily mean they're bad. We're crying out to the Lord, but listen, sometimes our emotions are God-given. God gave us the ability to have emotions, to cry and to be angry and to, um, to feel pain and to rejoice and to be happy. God gave us those emotions. What better way to express those emotions than to God who gave them to us? Even Job expressed his emotions to God, and they weren't always good emotions. He suffered. He suffered loss for a really long time. And he even, he even expressed his frustration with God to God. And he shared with God that he was upset. He shared with God that he was angry. He shared with God that he didn't know what was happening to him and why this was taking place. It's okay when you pray to ask God why. It's okay when you pray to tell God that you're mad. As long as in the, with the same heart we're telling God, we submit to him as our Lord. And that's the next thing I want you to say, uh, to see is that when we pour out our soul to God, we need to be humble and servant-hearted. When we pour out our soul to God, we need to be humble and servant-hearted. Notice that she said uh, in, uh, in verse 10, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said... O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. She mentioned three times that she was God's maidservant. Three times she called herself a maidservant. Now, in the Bible, when that word maidservant, in some of your versions it might say bond slave, um, in, in other places of scripture, a bond servant, um, there are multiple people who call themselves bond servants of God. In fact, Simon, or Simeon, uh, in, in the book, or in, in the New Testament, before Jesus was born, he called himself a, he called himself a bond slave, Peter, John, Paul called themselves bond slaves, Timothy, Titus, James, and Jude, they all called themselves bond slaves of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, when God's given the revelation to John, he called all the believers that were in the world bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And Jesus took the form of a bond slave. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, he took the form of a bond slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of man, he became a bond slave, a servant um, for, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the kind of attitude that God is looking for. Now, a bond slave in those days were typically people that used to be slaves and then had been set free by that master or their debt had been paid by somebody else. And that now free slave, in turn, willingly surrendered back into slavery themselves to the person who set them free. And that was generally marked by some form of an ear piercing so that everybody could see by the mark in their ear that they were a bond slave. But what was really unique about that was that it was no longer a slavery because of obligation, because they owed something, but it was a slavery because of love. They, the, sl- the servant generally went back to this person or surrendered to this form of service because they, they, they wanted, it was a form of worship and love and adoration for the person who set them free. And so when she calls herself a bondservant or a, a, a maidservant of God, she's saying, I have been set free because of my faith in the one true God, but I am a servant to the one true God. M- much the same way that we do when we call ourselves servants of God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were slaves to our sin. Our greatest desire was for sin. It was selfish in nature. We would always do. We always do what our greatest desire is. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from that, from being a slave to that sin. And now God gives us a greater desire, a desire for the heart of God, a desire to live for God, so that when we're faced with temptation, we are free to now do what God wants to desire what God wants. And now that we are free because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have surrendered our lives as bond slaves to Jesus. And we don't pierce our ears so that everybody in the world knows that we're a Christian, but Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. So it becomes evident eventually that we are followers of Jesus Christ. It becomes evident that when we follow Jesus Christ, people will know that we have been freed but we are now dedicated, loyal servants to God. Something else interesting about bond slaves is that um, they're not hired workers. Hired workers are either part-time or full-time. But even a full-time hired worker gets to go home, gets to have a family, gets to have a life. But a bond slave is somebody that says, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you not just a few hours of the week, not just one day on Sunday, or not just a, li- you know, a little bit every morning of the week. I'm giving you my entire life, and I'm giving you permission to be involved in every bit of it and make decisions for me. I'm giving you permission to decide what kind of person I'm going to be. There is no more, it's my life, I get to do what I want. It is now, God, this is your life. I surrender to you. And so this is the attitude that she had when she was praying to God. When she was pouring out her soul to God, she was saying, God, I am your servant, which means that I'm asking you for something, I'm about to ask you for something, but ultimately I surrender to your will and I am loyal to your glory. So if this does not measure up with your will and your glory, then I am okay if it doesn't happen. So she's notice a few of the phrases that she uses when, uh, when she's praying this prayer, she says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and, rem- and remember me and not forget. And then she says, I will give. She says, I'm yours and if you will indeed do this. She didn't come to God like an entitled child saying, hey God, I'm a Christian and you said you were going to do this for me so I better get it, right? It's the wrong kind of attitude to have when we go to the Lord in prayer. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And then he says in chapter 1, he says, but he must ask in faith without doubting. Some of us are double-minded, unstable in all our ways. That's how James describes the struggle with prayer that we have sometimes. We ask and we don't receive because we're asking with the wrong motives. Our desire is that God would answer our prayer so that we could spend it on our own pleasures and on our own desires. And he's saying that's double-mindedness. You shouldn't expect to get anything from God if you're going to God with a double-minded heart like that. That's basically described as a person who wants and desires the things of God while at the same time wanting and desiring the things of the flesh. God says, you ask with the wrong motives, that's why you do not have. But she's saying, she's, she's indicating a heart and a motive and an attitude when she comes to the Lord, not of entitlement, but she's saying, very confidently, she's saying, I am yours, I am your bondservant, I serve you, I serve your will loyally, and if you would see fit to answer my prayer, here it is. So she's coming to God with a heart of humility and and fully trusting on the power of God's righteousness to make her right in his sight and to give her permission to come boldly before that throne and speak to God. And then she offers her request and she says, I will give. Look at verse, uh, halfway down through verse 11. She says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. So she basically says, God, if you answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him to you. I will dedicate him to you to serve you in your temple for the rest of his life. And, uh, you know, uh, I just want to be clear about a couple of things. When, oftentimes, when we try to make deals with God, what some people would call like a foxhole prayer, 
You know, God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise that I'll never do it again. God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise that I'll be a missionary. God, if you give me this or fix this situation, I promise I'll go preach the word of God for the rest of my life. Or God, if you help me with this, then I promise that I'm going to go do this. And oftentimes it's an effort for us to somehow try to twist God's arm and maybe convince him to do something for us. And this was not her attitude. This was not why she prayed this prayer. You know, sometimes we, we feel like we can... Maybe give something to God that's worth enough that would motivate God to give us something in return. But the reality is none of us have anything to give to God. God doesn't need us and God doesn't need anything. He is 100% sufficient in and of himself. But he values us because he has ascribed worth into our souls and he loves us and he cherishes us and he wants us and he, and he desires a relationship with us. We are the most valuable part of God's creation and he wants this relationship to be made right and he wants us to be constantly pouring out our soul to him but there's nothing that we can do to motivate God to do anything for us. We have to simply do this and, and, and pray and seek his face and trust him to do what he will. But it is okay to express your intention to God, to express that your heart is in line with God, that you do desire to love God, that you do desire to be obedient to God, that you do desire to serve God. It's okay to express that intention. Uh, another, some more of those scriptures that I come across in like for Psalm 119, for instance, where I wonder if I could pray this prayer. David says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. He's saying, God, please give me something. Deal bountifully with me. He says, I will, if you do that, I will live and I will keep your word. And then he says, answer me, O Lord. I will obey your statutes. And then he says, I shall keep your statutes. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. David says that over and over and over again in the Psalms. He says, I will not forget. And I thought, you know what? Can I pray that? I, I wonder, I, like, I want to pray that. I pray that to God. God, I will not forget what you're telling me. I want to live for you. I promise you I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, this is my desire. This is my intention. But I wonder, can I really say that to God? Because I don't want to make a promise to God that I can't keep. God, I will not forget your word. But the reality is I know myself and I know there are some days when I forget God's word. And I remember later, I forgot. And then I have to repent. And so, but she's not making a promise to be perfect. And she's not making a promise to, um, to try to twist God's arm, but she's stating, my heart is in line and desiring to fully submit and surrender to you. And God, I want you to see that my intention is to fully obey you. The altern- What's the alternative? That's to say, God, will you please give me this? But I, you know, the reality is I don't have any intention of obeying you. Reality is I, I just need you to help me. I need you to bail me out this once, but I really don't have any intention of following you with my life. Obviously, that's not going to be the attitude you see in Hannah, and that's not the attitude in any of us when we go to the Lord in prayer. So God does desire that we, ex- we express out loud to him our desire of our heart to follow him in obedience. So when we cry out to the Lord, express your emotions to God. Be humble and servant-hearted, expressing your desire to Give him the glory and intention to give him the glory and then follow through with it. In verse 20 of chapter 1, after the Lord answered her prayer, in verse 20 it says, It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel saying, that this is, saying because I have asked him of the Lord. So she gave God the glory after he answered the prayer and followed through with this saying, I have, I'm giving God the glory. I prayed and God answered. I prayed and God answered. You met the, um, the man that I quoted, George Mueller, used to keep a journal. And he would write in the margin, uh, he would write in the margin a date and he would write down his prayer request. And on the other side of the page, on the flip side of the page, he would keep it blank because he would go back and look at his prayer requests regularly. And as they were answered, he would write in all the answers to his prayers and he would keep a record of all these prayers. And he was, he would, because he wanted to make sure that God got the glory for all the things that were happening in his life. So many times God answers our prayers and we've long forgotten that we ever prayed about it. So many times God answers prayers that we prayed and we attribute it to random chance or we attribute it to just, um, just coincidence or we attribute it to a good, you know, just, man, that worked out good. I don't know how that happened. But oftentimes the Lord answers our prayers. And something I've been trying to do, and it's, it's a habit I've been in and out of throughout my, my life as a Christian, is journaling. And um, 
uh, I try not to just journal about my day. I try to journal my prayers because that helps me focus, helps me not get too distracted. And so when I'm journaling, I'm just writing my prayer out. And one thing that I've been trying to practice is um, after I write a few things, I might pray through a scripture or something, I'll just do a little section about answered prayer. And, um, and I just try to think back the last, through the last few days and just kind of write down any answer, any things that happened that I believe are a direct answer to the prayers that I prayed the week before. And I've been super surprised at the things that the Lord brings to my mind in that moment. Sometimes I would have just gone, I would just overlook, but sometimes it means I just got to sit down, I need to be quiet, and I need to think. The last couple of days, God, where did you show up? Where did you answer my prayers? And the Lord begins to show me, and I'm completely blown away, but it gives me an opportunity to say, God, that was you. God, you get the glory for what you're doing in my life. God, you get the glory for being God and for doing your work. Not me. I didn't do these things. You did these things. God, you didn't help my, God, I didn't help my family. You helped my family. You know, so all these things that sometimes we miss. And the last thing I'd like to share is this. When you pour out your soul to God, talk to God about who he is. When you pour out your soul to God, talk to God about who he is. Notice she said, she used a few phrases in verse 11. She said, look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. She's not questioning whether God can see. She's not questioning whether or not God can remember. And she's not questioning whether or not God's a forgetful God. She knows God's not forgetful. She knows God can see her. And she knows that God can hear her. And then she calls him, O Lord of hosts. And she cries out to who she knows that God is. She calls him by his name. She rec- this is a name that gives him honor as the creator and as sovereign God, knowing that he's in control of all things. And she's giving him his credit and his due in this moment, saying, I'm about to ask for something, but I know that you are God. And she begins by saying this, but she couldn't have said that unless she knew about God. She needed to know who God was. And you get a little better picture of that in chapter 2. I'm not going to be able to read it all, but I'd like you to just notice in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, it's a long song. It's not really long. It's a few verses. A song of prayer and praise to God, but it's all about God. She's not asking for anything. She's not um, making any prayer requests. She's just talking to God about who God is. And everything she says about God are really magnificent, amazing qualities about God. Some of them are terrifying. She says things like, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. And she says, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. And she says, the Lord kills and makes alive, and he brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and also exalts. And then she says, he keeps the feet of his godly ones. She's naming off all these things that she knows about God, but how did she know those things about God? She knows those things because these were direct quotes from several passages of Scripture. She quoted Job 36, Exodus chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and chapter 8, and chapter 32. In most cases, people did not have access to the Word of God like we have access to the Word of God here. In fact, they would have only had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if that, maybe Jude, I mean, um, not Jude, Job, maybe Job, and maybe Ruth. So these are some passages of Scripture that she would have been familiar with only because her father would have passed them down to her in the home. Because they didn't necessarily all get to go to church like we do every week and open the Bible in a classroom and really study it. And they didn't all have a copy of the Word of God. In fact, being a woman, she wouldn't have had as much access as the men would have had. And the men would have had to go to the temple most likely to find a copy of the Word of God to study it together. And in order to do that, they would have had to, when they were there, they would have been so intentional about remembering everything they heard because they knew that when they went home, they had to leave this. And they wanted to use it throughout their day. And the fathers were responsible for passing that down in their homes. So just a little side note about the second generation, the generation coming up underneath the the current generation here at Rosemont Baptist Church that's leading out in faith. We need to think about whether or not we are passing this down to the next generation in such a way that they're going to remember it. Because the reality, let's be real. There's one of these in most every home here in LaGrange. But the reality is, even though it's there, people aren't reading it. It rarely makes it to church. So, if that's going to be the case, then what are we doing to help our kids remember it? 
so that at some point in time, our own kids will pour out their souls to God. Isn't that what we want? Do we want our children and our grandchildren to pour out their souls to God? To cry out to the Lord for salvation? This is something that was demonstrated in Scripture. And you know what's really neat is um, this passage of Scripture was also quoted by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it was called the Magnificat in Luke chapter 2. Much of, much of this was quoted by Mary. And how would Mary have known it? Mary didn't have, most likely didn't have a scroll rolled up in her little purse on the donkey. All right? Mary probably learned this from her father. Probably not even from her husband because she wasn't married yet. So she wasn't underneath the authority and the teaching of her husband yet. So it would have been all on her dad. So this is a really interesting picture. When you look at scripture, it should make us think about the responsibility of us as families passing on the word of God to the next generation, not being really passive about that. We need to be really careful that we're not passive about passing this down to the next generation and knowing it and knowing God so well, so much that we instill this deeply into the hearts of our kids so that they on their own, not because we made them do it, not because we had nighttime prayers by the bed, not because we had family worship, but at some point in time, they will cry out to God from the depth of their soul for salvation, and for the presence and favor of God every day of their life. So this is something that is really, is really interesting. So I think about this, and I think about whether or not I am spending enough time in God's Word. And you know what's, you know what's also really cool about this is that I ask people about prayer. Um, I ask the students about prayer a lot, and I ask them, you know, typically, you know, is it hard to pray? A lot of people, yeah, it's hard to pray. Why is it hard to pray? A lot of people are like, well, I just don't really know what to pray. So, okay, when you do know what to pray, do you ever get tired of praying? They're like, yeah, I kind of get tired of praying. Or a lot of people, I get distracted. I get distracted when I try to pray. And I think a lot of times we pray those same old prayers that happen all the time. It's, you know, we pray our prayer for a morning when we wake up. It's the same prayer we pray when we eat, eat lunch. It's the same prayer that we pray when we... Um, when we, uh, you know, do anything. And sometimes we're like, you know, we get to this place where we're like, I'm just not surely sure it's worth praying anymore. And um, our, a silly story, I don't even know if it's true, but a little girl that she prayed the same prayer every night and she kind of wondered, what's the point of doing this? So she, she recorded the prayer and then uh, every night before she went to bed, she just pushed play and played the prayers. And, you know, so honestly, it was about the same thing. We have our own little recorded prayers. But you know what's really cool is when you get into the word of God, and you begin having a conversation with God about him and about what he's saying, all of a sudden you realize you have more to pray about than you could ever pray. You open one book of the Bible and you begin to pray that book of the Bible. You could pray that book of the Bible for the rest of your life and never pray all the riches that are in that, that God has for you and for me. You get in Psalm 119, and I promise you, you'll get stuck. You'll be praying that for a long time. If you get in some of these passages, you just spend some time in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and you'll see the attitude of Hannah and you'll begin trying to talk to God the way she talked to the Lord. Pray to God. Just spend some time in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1 through 10 and talk to God about those qualities. You might be there for a while talking to God about how those affect your life and what they're doing. And it begins to add to your prayer richness that may have never been there before. So what I'm encouraging you to do is make sure that God's word is part of your prayer. Because a lot of us don't know what to pray, and a lot of it's because we don't spend time in God's word. So here's the deal. I'd like, I'd like you to notice verse 18 last. This is what it says. She says, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. There's no telling how long she was there, but whatever happened while she was on her knees, crying out, pouring out her soul to the Lord, physically, she was affected. It lifted up her countenance to the place where she was able to stand up and walk out of the temple no longer sad. And that was before her prayer was answered. That was before her prayer was answered. So what I'd like to do is encourage us um, as a church family and individually, and you know, we've got the night of worship and prayer coming up, but individually especially, we need to maybe carve out some time of silence and solitude where it's just you and God, and you pour out your soul to God. Pick one thing that's really, that you need to spend some time with God talking to him about, and spend that time pouring out your soul to the Lord God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. If you would, please stand as we pray. I would like to invite you to just think about you and your relationship with the Lord for a minute or two. I'm confident that many of you are seeking the Lord. You're praying. Probably because if you're involved in the church at all, you've gotten yourself in some situations that make you scared and you're desperate. (laughs) You need God's help. Um, But I would like to encourage you to make sure that you're making time to be alone with God and really pour out your soul to the Lord. And maybe in this next few minutes as we sing a song and pray, there's something you need to just cry out to the Lord about. And then you can pick it up later in a time when you can get all by yourself and spend some more time on it. Maybe you can just say, God, I'm struggling to even make time for something like this. Can you help me discipline myself to make time for you? I make time for everybody else and everything else. But do I make time for you? Maybe that's where you need to start. And then the last thing I'd like to say is if there's somebody in here, you say you're not sure if you're a believer in Jesus Christ or maybe you're beginning to believe but you've never trusted Jesus Christ, turn to follow Jesus with your life. The only way that we can approach God with that kind of confidence to pour out our souls to God is through Jesus. He makes us worthy because he died for us. If you've never turned to follow Jesus Christ with your life, then I would encourage you to cry out. Make that your first pouring out your soul to God. Cry out to God for salvation and for forgiveness. And ask him to save your soul. Let's pray. God, thank you for everybody here. Pray that your spirit would lead us in this time and that you would uh, lead our hearts to worship you and to glorify you as we pour out our souls to you. You are our God and we are your people. Please increase our faith and save the souls of those among us who are lost. May your name be glorified. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.